0: This is the bill kelly show podcast
1: prime minister theresa may says britain's threat level from terrorism elevated yesterday from severe to critical that is the highest rating and also means an attack may be imminent so let's bring in our first guest today david visett a terrorism expert and author of the thesis paradox he joins us now on the bill kelly show uh, david uh, good morning how are you
2: good morning hello
1: well um maybe we'll start with that critical threat level what does that mean
2: uh, well, it's quite rare for it to happen. Uh, it's happened twice in the past since we've had these these threat levels and they've been around for some years. Um, it happened once in 2006 when uh, we had the transatlantic airline plot where they were trying to smuggle um, liquid uh, bombs onto planes and blow them up as they flew out the Atlantic. Uh, and it was in place for a couple of days. And then we had it in 2007 uh, when uh, two car bombs uh, were set to go off outside a nightclub in, in London. Uh, and then Glasgow Airport was attacked by the same group. Um, so it's quite rare. Uh, what it means is that um, that the army come in and they stand on the fixed points uh, that we normally have armed police doing. So uh, vulnerable buildings like Downing Street, um, Buckingham Palace, uh, places like that, and, and big sporting venues where we normally have uh, policemen standing at fixed points with guns to protect people we bring in the army and um, we redeploy the police officers to other positions so that we we sort of double our efforts as it were uh, but it is rare uh, it is worrying to see um, the army in place of police um, and, and there's, there's lots of discussion about it but I think it's a, a, a prudent way forward I think it's a good idea uh, and, and I'm sure that in the very near future, we will revert back to where we were again once we've identified who this attack cell are that, that caused the problems in Manchester.
1: That was my next question. How long do you think this critical level is going to last?
2: Yeah, it, it's very difficult. I, I, until we identify... That what, what, what happened in Manchester, uh, as I'm sure you know, is, is, uh, is somebody with uh, with a bomb um, obviously killed uh, 22 people and injured another 59. The, the the construction of a device like that, as uh, powerful as that, and uh, un- unable to kill as many people as that, um, is quite technical. And um, the belief is that um, this person hasn't acted alone. Um, he's had logistical support, technical support, and also emotional support to keep him in a place where he, he can go and commit uh, a suicide mission as he's done. Um, and so we think there is a, a shell uh, that has assisted in doing that, and this attack cell may be dangerous until we've identified who that attack cell is uh, and we know um, where they are and we've uh, detained them and arrested them. Uh, I suspect this um, this uh, critical level will remain, and we will see soldiers in the positions that I've shared. But how long that's going to take, I don't know.
1: Three more men arrested in connection with Monday's suicide bombing at the concert in Manchester. Uh, We do know of uh, the original uh, person who has yet to be named, the 23-year-old who was arrested uh, pretty much hours after the attack. Are, Are more raids being conducted? Are more arrests expected?
2: Uh, they, they're, they're certainly they're conducting a number of search warrants um, based on on the intelligence that they've gained so far. Um, those, those searches will will be ongoing for some days. Uh, it takes a long time. They literally remove pretty much everything from the premises uh, to, before we decide sort of what's needed. Um, I suspect as, as time goes on, as, as we start looking through some of the things that we're removing from the houses, you know, the computer media, um, some of the the documentation, um, and even some of the forensic evidence that we recover from these premises. I suspect those will create new lines of inquiry. Further people will be arrested and further searches will be conducted. Um, There haven't been any further arrests at the moment. I think there's four in total. Um, So uh, I put the three uh, today and, and the one original one yesterday. Um, but I hasn't been any further arrests and no further searches at the moment. But I, but it is a fast-moving investigation. I suspect we will see more of it in, in the coming seven days.
1: Is it accurate to describe Manchester with, you know, a population equal to Toronto? You know, two and a half, two, 2.6 million people. Is is this a city on edge?
2: I, I, I don't think so. Um, I just, I, everyone's horrified by what's happened. And a lot of people are very, very angry. Obviously, there are there were children among the victims and, and despite even even people like myself who you know have, i've seen lots of things uh, in relation to terrorism um but the, the fact that there are children involved um it, it makes it it's much much worse and the fact that they they it appears that they have deliberately targeted children i suspect um this is not on it life will go on uh, you know things will return to normal but the anger will remain and um and, and people, they want something done. You know, there's, there's lots of people saying, well, we want internment. Uh, you know, we should round all these jihadis up and put them in prison without any trial. Um, we should deport all these sorts of people. You know, there's lots of that anger going on. And, and, and I understand that anger. I wouldn't describe Manchester on, on edge. I haven't been there today myself. Um, but, um, but, but certainly the mood across the country is, is you know, we will uh, capture these people. We will, you know, we'll robustly use the laws in place that are able to do that and and we will we will be fair about it but um there's a lot of anger uh, but I wouldn't say everyone's
1: on edge. We're chatting with uh, David Weiss at uh, terrorism experts, author of The Thesis Paradox, here on The Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. Um, obviously, there are a lot more um, soldiers on the streets of Manchester as opposed to police officers. And I would think that, um, in general, people of Manchester would be happy with that, even though it might come with... Um, uh, you know, more time getting into venues or getting around the city. I'm sure they're happy with the response.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the soldiers aren't actually wandering around the streets. say, um, they're, they're very much at fixed points. Um, embassies you know in London uh, we would have uh, police officers armed police officers standing out literally standing outside embassies uh, literally standing outside Downing Street uh, Parliament you know Buckingham Palace those those sorts of fixed points where we would normally have armed police officers um, in place of those now those police officers have been redeployed so they are more mobile and they can respond to uh, calls from the public I've seen this is suspicious or this has happened um, and, and we have the, the army in place of, of the police officers that were standing on these switch points so I think there's the army will also be used perhaps for some sporting events but again standing at very much switch points not patrolling around the streets no road checks or anything like that it's definitely not like that um, it, life is, is very much a, as, it, as it was two days ago um, just, you know, there, there are some changes and, um, you know, we, there is a lot of anger, but um, it's, it's not, it hasn't drastically changed. Uh,
1: we know that the world did change after 9-11 um, and I really can't see, you know, added security inside venues like Manchester Arena or, or, or you know, pick your high profile yeah. venue around the world because this attack happened outside.
2: It did, and um, um, uh, that is a problem. Um, um, you know, we have been saying it for some time. Is it's, it's all very well um, searching people's bags as they go into a venue to make sure they don't take anything, you know, a gun or a, a, an explosive device into the venue and use it inside. But we have always had this problem is when people are arriving. Um, and you have large crowds queuing up to get into venues, or when they are leaving, and you have a large concentration of people trying to come out of particular exits. They are vulnerable, uh, and and I guess that we need to think about how we we deal with that. The the, the problem with with all of these sorts of things is you you can you can target harden anywhere. You can search bags. You can um, you can put exclusion zones around places, and uh, but. You can't protect everywhere. It's impossible to protect everywhere. And uh, we've got to use the, the eyes and ears of the public um, to uh, you know, give us intelligence. We've got to rely on, on our security services and our police to do their jobs well and do them effectively uh, to get that intelligence and, and get in there early before they, these plots come to fruition. We can't protect everywhere. We can't protect everyone. You know, we can't put bollards on every street uh, to stop, you know, cars getting up on pavements. It's just impossible, and, and, and I don't think any of us want it really. But what, what we have got to do we we got to work together um, and make sure that we get this intelligence early, and, and we get these early interventions, we get in there and arrest them at a very early stage. And it might not. It might be that we arrest people and can't prosecute them, but we put them on notice. You know, we say we know what you're doing. Um, and we search their premises. We make sure they haven't got any explosive devices, no weapons, nothing that they can use to go and hurt anyone else. And you know, and, and, and this, these early interventions are what's key. And that's and that's really he, where we need to be investing our time. All these things with the army, extra police officers, all of that sort of stuff. There, are an insurance policy, if you like. If if the intelligence collection and gathering goes wrong, um, and the intelligence collection and gathering has gone wrong, there's no doubt about it. Um, this, this guy was known. Um, I suspect that, that there's been a risk assessment done at some stage in the past. I and mean, it we decided he wasn't a threat. You know, they have been mistakes made, I'm sure. Um, but I, we, you know, we, we have, we can't protect everyone. We can't have armed police stand on every police, on every corner. We can't have police cars stopping every car going down the street. It's just an impossibility.
0: David, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: A Hamilton City Councilor believes uh, this city can do more to protect vulnerable residents during heat alerts. Councilor Sam Marulo is going to uh, present a motion tonight at City Council. And well, let's bring him on. He can tell us about the motion that he's going to present. Sam, how are you? I'm doing
3: well, Rick. And yourself?
1: Not too bad. So I I like this idea. I've I've started the show saying I think this is a good idea to help uh, fixed-income or low-income residents uh, who have uh, well-documented medical conditions uh, feel much better during heat alerts. So maybe we'll break down what the issue is and what your motion addresses.
3: Okay. So as most people are aware, we have either heat alerts or cold alerts that the medical officer of health uh, is mandated to declare Uh, when an event is prevalent. So when that occurs, it's the, the event itself or the, the alert itself is not for the average person to become aware that it's hot out because we all know it's hot out. The, the reason behind the alert is to trigger a response from the social and public health network to ensure that people that have been assessed as vulnerable are reached, are reached to ensure that they have found a, a safe haven away from that heat and/or humidity. So, in essence, we have a, a, we have a significant amount of infrastructure as well as resources allocated during these alerts to ensure people are are facilitated into a into a safe environment. What they've done in New York State, and which I'm very impressed with, uh, and they've done it throughout the state, is that they've incorporated air conditioners as a means to address the heat alerts for those that are are financially vulnerable, but more importantly, physically vulnerable and could be life-threatening under a heat alert condition. So they found that not only does it help people, it also doesn't displace them, and it doesn't require the same necessary resources to facilitate the movement of that individual to a safe environment when an alert is called. So it makes a great deal of sense. I'd like to incorporate it as a pilot project. I think it should be something that is implemented clear across the province. Uh, If New York State can do it, and let's face it, New York City, one of the largest cities in the world, if they're able to do it and their budget for the entire state is only $3 million, uh, it really speaks volumes to how small a percentage this impacts, but how great of a percentage of benefit it provides to those who are are most
1: affected. You mentioned the program in New York State. Uh, It gave away 4,143 air conditioners to eligible residents in 2015. Obviously the number in our city would be much lower than that.
3: Absolutely, Uh, that's for the entire state. That includes New York City. So you can only imagine. It would probably be a a very small amount, but but it would mean a great deal to that very small amount of people, uh, even to a point where it prevents life-threatening conditions. But more importantly, it takes away some of the stress, even among our own employees, who are part of the system to facilitate the relocation of these individuals to a safe environment.
1: And basically, your motion is just calling on staff to investigate the feasibility of doing this.
3: That's correct. And I've been working with both public health staff as well as emergency and community services accordingly, and they've assisted in drafting this motion, and I, I look forward to the report. Accordingly,
1: do, do you have a cost estimate in mind? Do you have a number in your mind uh, that would say, uh, you, you know, it's it's well worth this dollar figure to do it?
3: Well, I think if the, the entire state of New York uh, can do it for three million dollars, uh, I'm, I'm sure half, of, and not you can imagine how many million, many millions of people that means. Uh, In Hamilton, we have half half a million people. We're talking a very small amount of money. It really isn't about the the money itself, per se. It's about a program that can save people's lives Mm -hmm. and also mitigate the cost of the resources associated with finding safe environments for those individuals. So uh, I wouldn't want to guess what that amount is, but it wouldn't be a general levy impact because, as you know, we have a $50 million allocation from the hydro funds. We are committed as a council uh, for poverty initiatives as well as It's affordability um, affordability for housing. So this plays right into that in dealing with the vulnerable population on fixed incomes, uh, but more importantly, have an ailment of some kind that's exasperated by these heat alerts and events uh, that we can basically mitigate uh, their quality of life uh, issues.
1: We're speaking with uh, Sam Rula, Hamilton City Councilor for Ward 4 here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. I'm not sure if we have statistics on this, but are we seeing more and more people going to those so-called cooling zones in the city?
3: Well, every time an alert um, is called, we have people either live in high-rises or live in basement apartments or um, obviously that are affected greatly from this heat Out out of those individuals. Uh, we have some people that the, these, these events can be life-threatening. That's the focus of this initiative, is that who are those people and how can we uh, provide them with that air conditioner as, as, you know, for medicinal purposes? Again, this is not a luxury. This truly is a medicinal approach of dealing with the most vulnerable in our community who face life-threatening circumstances under extreme heat alerts
1: if this motion does go ahead tonight this feasibility study is compiled the the, the pilot project works the eventual program works if all comes to pass uh, and it is deemed a success can you see maybe a year or two three down the road that we flip the switch and look towards our most vulnerable during the winter months and say hey we got to get you know more people heat during these uh, you know really cold spells
3: oh that's already in place so the difference between heat and and um, cold alert the cold alert activation is more related to those that are homeless. So it's an entirely different process. Yeah. Um, so we do have utility arrears programs. Uh, so if somebody, for instance, uh, that is vulnerable, can't afford their their gas, or using gas, or so on, or hydro, um, that there's a program in place for them. Actually, uh, years ago, before this $50 million allocation, I brought forward what was known as the Opportunities Fund, which was a half a million dollars dedicated back in 2001 or two for that very intense it was to provide a social safety net for for those that couldn't afford their heat or hydro so they would be protected they are protected but the heat alerts a little different in that not everybody has an air conditioner um, but everyone basically has a heat uh, if they, if they have a home the probability is that they have some sort of form of heat that's not the same uh, when it comes to air conditioners
1: mm-hmm. Sam appreciate the time good luck with the motion tonight and in the, the program I think it's worthwhile Thanks, Rick. Have a good day. You too. Sam Marullo, Ward 4 Councillor here with the City of Hamilton. Uh, And stay tuned, as we'll have the summer forecast coming up uh, just before the end of the program. So we'll see how hot or humid and sticky uh, it'll be in, uh, in Hamilton this summer.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Hamilton's sewage pipes and treatment plants continue to battle the strain of the high water levels in the city and the overload has prompted the city to take action. Here to talk about it is the director of Hamilton Water, Dan McKinnon. Dan, welcome to the show. Morning, Rick. Well, um, obviously, uh, there's uh, you know uh, no surprise that we have received a, a boatload of uh, rain and then some over the last uh, month and a half, two months, uh, and this has really prompted you guys to take some action regarding the uh, diluted sewage in the city. Tell us what's happening.
4: Well, we've been responding to the uh, to this situation over the last six or eight weeks. Uh, not only the rainfall, but these uh, extraordinary water levels that we're seeing both in Lake Ontario and the harbor and I think it's uh, kind of unprecedented for us. I mean, over the last 10 or 12 years, we've dealt with heavy rainfall events and the pressure that it's put on our, our infrastructure, but generally we're talking about the sewer system itself. We're starting to see a lot of uh, adverse effects on our surface uh, infrastructure, be it trails or, uh, or roads or that kind of thing. So we, um, we're we certainly across the entire city dealing with a number of issues, but uh, most uh Most notable is probably the waterfront trail in uh, Bayfront Park there. That's remained closed for a couple of weeks now and probably will for a few weeks more until we can um, get in there and start to do some repairs. But we can't even begin that process because the water levels remain so high. And, uh, you know, when you think about this past weekend, we got a bit of rain. But um, what people may not appreciate is when we get a strong east or northeast wind, Uh, the water pushes up against the waterfront trail. So I was down there on Monday and there was an incredible amount of debris that had been pushed up just over the weekend. I saw, you know, 10, 15-foot trees that had been uprooted and just laid across the uh, trail. So I think the one thing that's unique about the situation that we're dealing with this year is just the the, the high water levels and and the the issues that it's creating across uh, certainly our waterfront communities.
1: Not only the issues, but uh, I'm sure you're seeing a lot of dollar signs up in the air too.
4: Yeah, we are. I, I prepared a, a, an information update for council yesterday, and we're we're, we're definitely expect expecting to exceed a million dollars in repairs uh, for a variety of uh, infrastructure across the city. And that could climb to two or three million dollars, depending on, you know, what's necessary for us to go back in and, and repair these facilities. And, you know, one of the things that we have to think about when we, and, you know, specifically with the waterfront trail is, We're going to have to plan using different assumptions with with what we expect the water level to be at in the future. And notwithstanding the fact that this is unprecedented, we're going to have to build our infrastructure expecting this type of thing to happen again, which means we're going to have to raise our finished grades, basically raise the elevation of the trail and then uh, build more protective uh, armor stone walls along it. So uh, not only are we just going to have to respond to put these facilities back together, we're going to have to make different assumptions about what can happen in the future.
1: You mentioned the $1 to $2 million figure. When was the last time we spent that much to fix things or clean up things that was associated with a weather incident? Would it have been the ice storm?
4: Uh, for for a discrete event like that, uh, the ice storm definitely would have been a big one. But I can tell you over the years, uh, flooding has really uh, created a lot of pressure on the city budgets. Uh, certainly one of the biggest events that sticks in my mind was July 26, 2009, when the uh, portions of the Red Hill Valley Expressway were flooded. We had an event that was uh, extraordinary by uh, by any standard and um, as a result of that and certainly as a result of the these extreme wet weather events that we've seen occur since around 2004 the city's invested tens of millions if not approaching 100 million of dollars uh, just over the last decade um trying to make our sewer systems more resilient to these these types of storms that we're seeing going forward but again the the thing that's unique about what we're experiencing right now is Um, It it wasn't kind of a discrete event. It happened over a long period of time, a wet weather event that happened over a large geographic area. And it's really adversely affected large portions of uh, Ontario and and, uh, Quebec, uh, as as you can see from, from news stories that are coming out of Quebec.
1: Dan McKinnon is uh, the director of Hamilton Water joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. Uh, We've learned that the Woodward Avenue Water Treatment Plant has released the equivalent of about 1,300 Olympic-sized swimming pools of diluted sewage into the Hamilton Harbor. Uh, How's this happening and why is this happening?
4: Yeah, that's uh, you know it's important, uh, and appreciate the opportunity to kind of explain how the wastewater treatment plant at Woodward Avenue works. So we we have a certificate of approval that allows us to treat about 409 million liters of sewage every day, uh, because we have a large combined sewer system, which means that uh, in the old part of the city, there's one pipe in the road that picks up both the sanitary flow that would come from your home, as well as the storm water that falls on the street. Uh, old communities like Hamilton have large, complex combined sewer systems. What that means is all that wet weather, all that stormwater makes its way to the Woodward plant. So while we have a certificate of approval that will allow us to treat just over 400 million litres a day, um, we can exceed that during wet weather events by 50% up to 614 million litres a day. But once the flow is going to Woodward exceeds 614 million litres a day, Um, It's essentially illegal for us to put any more flow through the plant, which means by law we have to bypass out into the uh, into the harbor. So, um, you know, I think that's important for folks to understand. This isn't something where, you know, there's been an error or anything like that. We're only allowed to push so much flow through our plant. So, the flows that we've been seeing uh, come to the plant over the last six or eight weeks have been exceeding that, which means that we have to bypass into. uh, into the harbour. The the good news story, though, is over the last 10 or 15 years, we've made significant improvements, spent hundreds of millions of dollars at the plant itself as well with our primary treatment uh, capacity and, and our chemically enhanced primary treatment facilities. So even the, the sewage that's getting bypassed, um, it's actually receiving a, a primary level of treatment which every every year we try to do more and more things that uh, to improve the quality of the effluent leaving our wastewater plant and it's all in order to um, protect the harbor, uh, essentially protect the harbor from us, really, uh, but to try to, uh, all in an effort to clean up the harbor and improve water quality there. Uh, Is there anything
1: dangerous going in the harbor?
4: Um, Well, it's difficult to say with 100% certainty. I would say that anything that can make its way into the sewer system can possibly make its way into the harbor, and certainly we've seen over the years when we have these weather events and we have a bypass or an overflow from one of our uh, combined sewer overflow tanks. Anything that people may put down the toilet uh, can essentially make its way into the harbour. So we see needles sometimes. We see uh, hygiene materials um, that uh, that are commonly available at any drugstore. And essentially anything, you walk through a Canadian tire store and anything that you see there as far as a cleaner or anything like that, people can put it down the sewer and uh, it's, um, it can make its way into the harbour. And that's one of the things that we want to encourage people to do. The only thing that should ever go down a toilet is toilet paper. Uh, But we know that people will sometimes put paint down the drain or put other things. So uh, the short answer is yes, Uh, there are things that make their way to the harbor that we'd really not rather see there and that can be dangerous. But uh, we certainly do our best to try to uh, prevent it from making its way there.
1: We have about a minute left. Uh, Can you foresee a day in in the near future where you do not have to uh, dump this diluted sewage? Are we coming to that, that threshold?
4: Oh, well, that's certainly our hope. One of the, I mean, as staff, we've got all kinds of great ideas that, uh, that we can put forward to try to prevent this from happening. The challenge is budgets uh, in the water and the wastewater business. Whenever you start building water, wastewater infrastructure, you're talking very big money. And we have a big project at the plant that we're just kicking off right now. We're over the next four years, we're going to spend about $400 million to improve the quality of uh, the effluent leaving the plant. But uh, I would hope in the next ten or fifteen years, through our master plans and and you know our creative uh, ways to to raise revenue to build these facilities, I'm very hopeful that we'll uh, we'll at one point get to a day where there's no no bypasses or overflows making their way to the harbor.
1: And we got more rain forecast tomorrow.
4: Unfortunately, we do, and <laughs> we know from Environment Canada that they're expecting these lake levels to remain high for at least a few more weeks. So it's uh, it's going to be a challenge uh, for another another several weeks, anyways.
1: Dan, love to consider or love to continue the conversation, but uh, we're plumb out of time here. We got to let you go. Appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Rick. All right, Dan McKinnon, uh, director of Hamilton Water, here on the Bill Kelly Show, talking about uh, the removal or, or dumping of diluted sewage into the Hamilton Harbor because of all the rain we have received. Uh, the Woodward Avenue Water Treatment Plant simply, uh, as, as by laws and Dan uh, described, uh, can't hold all that water. So some of it has to go and some of it is uh, some raw materials that uh, people are
0: dumping down their toilet, obviously. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML
1: a report commissioned by the Ontario government recommends all employees be granted a week of unpaid personal emergency leave a year. It's called the changing workplaces report. Uh, It was written by two labor law experts who uh, consulted with workers, uh, unions, businesses for two years on a wide range of work related issues. Um, They unleashed 173 different recommendations uh, which include reforms uh, to collective bargaining, strengthening workplace safety and inspection practices. Uh, there's wage fairness uh, for part time, casual, temporary contract, and seasonal employees. Uh, the recommendations also include increasing paid vacation time for employees of longer than five years to three weeks. Uh, the report, however, does not recommend extending paid sick leave to all employees. Uh, the advisors say it would be beneficial, but extending Uh, The personal emergency leave to all employers is a more important first step. Uh, They also recommend that personal emergency leave be available for victims of domestic violence. Here to shed a little more light on this Changing Workplaces review is uh, Sarah Mayo, Social Planning Research Council of Hamilton, and joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Sarah, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Uh, Thanks for coming on. At at first glance, at first blush, uh, what are your thoughts on this review?
5: Well, I would say it's it's definitely not a radical report. It's it's only recommending very incremental changes um, that that aren't going to fundamentally solve precarious work. Uh, you know, it, it certainly um, it acknowledges the problems in our economy that are that are caused by and and for workers that are caused by uh, precarious work, but it's it's it falls far short of what. Um, uh, campaigns uh, uh, to improve workers' rights uh, have been calling for.
1: Why does it fall short? What What is not in this report that you want to see?
5: Well, I think you know it, it, there are some positives, but but I think that that basically it's sort of saying uh, for some of the the things that it acknowledges are some of the biggest problems around scheduling, for instance, um, and and the fact that empl- that employers. Um, uh, don't have to give notice to about schedule changes to employees and 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 can can uh, sign zero-hour contracts with employer uh, with employees there They say yes, this is a problem and it affects workers in 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 terrible ways But you know it's a complex problem and so we, we're not going to have a solution right now We say you know they say we're gonna uh, have to go to kind of sectoral look at different sectors and create different solutions for different sectors of of the economy and um, that's you know uh there should be some basic protections uh no matter what kind of job you're in um to be able to balance your life and your work so um having you know uh, a certain amount of notice in in schedule changes for instance um so that's not in here that's a big one that's not in here Uh,
1: another thing that's not in the changing workplaces uh, report is uh, a call to raise the minimum wage is that something that you were anticipating would be in
5: well, no, because it was excluded from this report, uh, from the mandate of the of the of the workplace review, um, and and so it's a, a kind of on a different track. And we'll see. Uh, the, the province has hinted that they may um, that they may be uh, going towards a $15 minimum wage, uh, which is the the campaign uh, 15 and Fairness has been calling for for quite a, a long time. And and in Alberta, the um, provincial government there has um, set that as their target. So. Um, uh, we'll see if that comes but it's a separate process.
1: There's 173 different recommendations the provincial government obviously is not announced yet which of the report's recommendations it will adopt or, or follow. Uh, is there one or two that you would like to see the government say hey we, we have to do this?
5: Yeah, I think a lot of them are pretty basic. Uh, you know, they're, like I said, they're so incremental that I can't see, it would be very disappointing if even these incremental small changes, the province, uh, leaves most of them, uh, on the shelf because most of them are, um, uh, important, um, uh, small changes that will, uh, not have a radical impact and, and can at least do some minor changes for employee, uh, employees. And so one of them around, uh, um, vacation time, I mean, it, you know, they only, uh, suggest going up to three weeks after five years at the same employer um you know Bill Kelly and I talked about this and how you know uh, vacation time actually increases productivity and so if employers aren't giving three weeks vacation at five years uh, of the same employer uh, you know they're they're hurting themselves by by having unproductive workers um, so so minimum things like that um, um, I would imagine won't be too hard for the government to do and the personal emergency leave um, it's unpaid and so that's a, a a problem, but at least it gives, um, more flexibility to, um, to employees, um, to be able to take time off work and, and not be paid, but at least know that their job is still secure and they won't be penalized.
1: I do want to get a little more into that personal emergency leave. We're with uh, Sarah Mayo today uh, with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill today. Uh, One of the recommendations is to uh, have that personal emergency leave be available for victims of domestic violence. I was surprised that it's not already in there.
5: Yeah, I mean that's again another one where uh how could they say no? Uh you know, it's not like it's a paid leave, so so how um you know, if if employers are 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 not uh recognizing that as a reason for someone to just take a day or two off work, um um that's sad and and you know, we should at least have that in in legislation. And and uh, so, you know, so, so some one change that's kind of minor in a way, it's just a word, but it's to rename um the Employment Standards Act to the Workplace Rights Act, and and that I do think is an important change. Seems minor, but it really does set a better tone. It's not standards that oh, okay, maybe if we could do them, that would be good. It's rights, and that really sets the uh, tone to employers and employees. Employers, you have to do this, and employees, it's a right. So come and complain and and tell us when you're not being um, treated properly. And the enforcement that they're really suggesting that the um, ministry change from a kind of customer service agency to an a law enforcement agency and that would be really important Uh,
1: the flip side is and I'm sure a lot of employers are thinking uh, hold the fort here how are we going to afford all this
5: well, I mean, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. I mean, their reaction has been pretty muted. They they didn't sound the alarm. They said, "Oh well, you know, their main re- their main reaction is before you do any of this, put in an, an economic and uh, do an economic impact analysis." So, kind of that makes me that I interpret that as I'm saying, we uh, we know this is coming. We 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 know that that, that the uh, current Employment Standards Act is too uh, is not strong enough for employees, and we know it's coming. And so, just kind of delay it. By having more study, um, they're not, uh, you know, except for the, the the main thing they're against is the increase to the student minimum wage. Um, but apart from that, that's there, you know. I think people see this as pretty inevitable. We haven't had changes in a long time, and our workplaces has, has have really changed, and we do need to protect workers uh, from exploitation.
1: Sarah, thank you very much for the time. Enjoy the rest of your day.
5: Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: We're talking about the Changing Workplaces Report, uh, commissioned by the Ontario government, and it recommends that all employees among other things, be granted a week of unpaid personal emergency leave a year. There's 173 different recommendations, which include reforms to collective bargaining, uh, strengthening workplace safety and inspection practices. There's wage fairness for part-time, casual, temporary contract and seasonal employees, and uh, increasing paid vacation time for employees of longer than five years to three weeks. A personal emergency leave also being extended uh, and uh, made available to victims of domestic violence. Um, The only um, pause button, if you will, is that the provincial government has not yet said, hey, we're going to enact all these recommendations, or here's the ones we're going to go, and here's the ones that we're going to leave out. Uh, That will come in the next uh, several weeks or perhaps months. Here to shed a little more light on uh, what this review means... Uh, in the workplace is uh, Lior Samfuro, employment lawyer at Sanfuro Chamarkin, LLP barristers and solicitors and the host of the Employment Hour here on AM 900 CHML Sundays at noon. Lior, how are you? Good morning, Rick. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for joining us today. So what does this review, and I know there's, you know, 173 different recommendations. They haven't all been adopted. The government's going to look them over. But at first glance, what does this mean for employees and
6: employers? Well, certainly, Rick, the the goal here was to try to make life better, easier for employees across uh, the province uh, to try to uh, even out some of the uh, the inequality, if you will, between employers and employees. And uh, as a general proposition, I think that is a good thing. Uh, I don't know that anyone will disagree with that. I do think, though, that many of the recommendations here were not fully thought out, at least in terms of the cost and the practicality of it. And the, this report and the 173 uh, recommendations in it range from what I would consider to be good, effective recommendations that can make things better to pointless recommendations that really are not going to change anything and don't really have any teeth to some recommendations that could actually be counterproductive and, and make things worse in the workplace. And my hope is that the uh, the government is going to review these carefully and really think uh, long and hard about which recommendations they're going to accept uh, and not, and uh, and potentially do a further study to understand the costs to employers of implementing some of these changes.
1: Well, give us an example of a recommendation that you think makes sense, and one that you mentioned is, is counterproductive, something that's going to do some harm.
6: Probably, to me, the best recommendation has to do with the Ministry of Labor's ability to to have uh, to enforce uh, the laws. Uh, there's this uh, episode of of Seinfeld where they make a. Uh, Fund of public libraries. And Feinfeld says, you know, there's a reason why people don't return books to the library. What are you going to do? Charge us a nickel? Uh, And the same thing actually happens with the Ministry of Labor. The Ministry of Labor uh, can inspect workplaces and and issue orders when employers violate uh, the employees' rights, but those orders have very little teeth. The Ministry of Labor is not equipped to enforce those orders, and any fines are nominal. So oftentimes employers don't really care about those, those, those issues. They don't take the time to ensure they're in compliance because there's often no repercussions. Well, one of the things this report tries to do is to, number one, increase the ability to fine employers for violations of employee rights up to potentially $100,000, and also give the Ministry of Labor and the Labor Board in the province expanded power to both process complaints and force uh, uh, its orders And I think that's a positive thing, and I think that's one of the things that uh, if implemented could really help employees here because it's going to make employers stand up and pay attention, and now they can't just be very blasé about their own workplaces. So to me, if implemented, and I've been advocating this myself for a long time, would be a very, very good change. So I'll put that in the very good uh, column, if you will, Rick. Uh,
1: And and one that that could have uh, some adverse effects?
6: Well, I think that, uh, you know, really all we're asking here for employers to comply with the laws, there was a, uh, a blitz done by the Ministry of Labor uh, I, I was earlier this year or late last year where they found that three quarters of employers or so were not in compliance uh, with the law. They issued orders for those employers to comply with the law, and then they came back a few months later and they found out that most of those employers, where orders were issued, still didn't do anything about it. So I, I don't see much of a downside there. But you're asking about potentially uh, a, a, bad, uh, a bad recommendation or maybe a pointless one. Well, let me give you an example of a, of a pointless one. One of the recommendations is that after one year, an employee can request uh, the employer to change their schedule, maybe modify their hours. That said, uh, there's no obligation on the employer to, to do anything with this request. And I'm going to say an employee can always request that the schedule be changed, the employer can always say yes or no. So I don't really see what's the point in explicitly giving the employee the right to request a change after uh, a year. I think it looks nice on paper, but it's completely uh, and utterly really meaningless. But let me give you an example of potentially some bad recommendation. Uh, right now, one of the recommendations is that with respect to uh, to part-time employees, that that there be some that the Ministry of Labor can regulate the scheduling, in other words, how far in advance a schedule can be created so that there's less uncertainty for employees. While I understand the logic of that, many of the businesses that are going to be affected cannot schedule weeks in advance. It's very fluid. It depends on a variety of factors. And I think it's almost an invitation for a disaster for some businesses. And we can think, you know, our our fast food restaurants and the like, not being able to comply with this and, and potentially... By trying to comply, they can incur unnecessary costs, which can then impact their ability to pay wages, impact costs to the consumer. I, I don't know that that is a good idea there, and I think it's misguided. Some of the other potentially bad recommendations, in, in my respectful opinion, is the ability for certain classes of employees to unionize that are currently are not able to unionize, such as doctors, uh, lawyers, uh, other farm workers, etc., there's reasons why these employees in the past have been excluded from unionization, uh, and I think those reasons are still valid, and changing that to me would not be a good idea.
1: Leora, we got to run. Thank you very much for the insight, and uh, continued success on the Employment Hour on CHML.
6: Thank you so
1: much. Lior Samfiro, employment lawyer at Samfiro Tumarkin, LLP, barristers and solicitors. Check him out on the Employment Hour weekdays, or not weekdays, Sundays on AM 900 CHML from noon until one. A fantastic program of uh, your rights in the workplace. And uh, I'm sure they'll talk about the Changing Workplaces uh, review that was uh, issued yesterday, uh, written by a couple of labor lawyers that took uh, two years, really to uh, consult with workers unions businesses on uh, a range uh, of work related issues and hammer down uh, some uh, recommendations that uh, they think will make the workplace better as you heard from Lior, some are pointless some uh, might uh, create more harm than good we'll see what the provincial government does with this report
0: you're listening to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml
1: a new study shows children who aren't vaccinated face harsher judgments than their parents who refused immunization. The UBC study examines attitudes involving a contentious public health issue for which Canada, as we know, does not have a national vaccination strategy. Uh, now, other kids might not want to sit to uh, to sit next to an unvaccinated student at school. Um, perhaps work a, a, on a project with this uh, unvaccinated Uh, appear or uh, go on a play date at the child's house. Uh, This according to Professor Richard Carpiano, the lead study author and a sociologist at the University of British Columbia. The study focused on moms uh, because, well, they typically make a family's health decision. We don't want to leave that up to dads because we would never go to the doctors. Um, And uh, it basically found that children of so-called anti-vaxxers deal with more stigma regardless of the reasons for their parents' decision fascinating stuff maureen dennis is a mother of four she's a parenting expert and the founder of we and joins us now on the bill kelly show maureen good morning how are you
7: great thank you how are you doing
1: not too bad thanks for joining us today uh your your thoughts on this study it seems uh, i'm fascinated by it i'm not sure if i wholeheartedly believe in the uh that there's an overwhelming stigma what do you think
7: yeah i agree with you on that i i don't think most kids even know which of their friends um aren't vaccinated or are vaccinated i think that if you have a situation in your family where you have a new baby elderly um grandparents or somebody living with you or maybe somebody with um immune um you know compromised immune system those are people who have absolutely valid concerns on being exposed to unvaccinated children i i should say up front, I totally am for vaccinating kids all four of mine are um but it's there are actually legit concerns here and if you if that child brings something home like whooping cough to a, a brand new sibling that's a that's a bad problem to have so they might in those cases be more aware of who is in their class, and, and what health concerns are going on within those two different families.
1: Do you think schools or the public health system should, should identify the children who are not vaccinated or, or even under-vaccinated?
7: You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting dilemma. I have four kids, like I said. I vaccinate them. Um, one of my kids had missed a booster somewhere along the line. And recently, the public health sends out these notices saying, if you don't get your kid vaccinated and prove it to us, they will be suspended, which I find ironic when you know that there are, are groups of kids, there are kids within the school who are fully unvaccinated, yet my kid's going to be suspended for not having a booster up to date. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, that's that's where, you know, parents kind of go, well, here, my kid's going to be suspended for it, yet this kid can come to school fully unvaccinated how how does that work
1: we got the same letter my daughter who's in uh who's in grade 10 i brought home the letter hey uh, you know uh, you have to prove that uh, she has received this booster shot or else yeah you will be suspended and i had the same thought like you know there's there's probably dozens if not hundreds of kids in her high school who are not vaccinated at all or are, are they getting the same letter
7: no they aren't yeah because I asked the school and i asked public health that exact question because i you know i just i don't i don't agree with it at all and Um, essentially they do have to go through a process to prove that for whatever reason they don't believe or don't want to have their children vaccinated. Um, So, you know, do I want to have any child, you know, um, put in a situation where they're ridiculed by their peers because of mostly their parents' decision? Absolutely not. However, I think they do have to understand that their parents have made a health decision for them that may put them in a situation where they're not able to go to somebody's house because they could bring something that could make another family member very sick. It's also a case of what if a child, um, there's a child who's going through chemo at my child's, in my oldest um, son's school, and she cannot be exposed to that. So that child cannot come to school because there are unvaccinated children there. So it is a much more complicated conversation then essentially you know the parents have decided because of a long debunked fear that uh about vaccinations that they they are not then responsible for that decision and i think that if we're saying that there's a stigma on these children uh, it goes back to their parents And they have to have that conversation with their children about those decisions that their families have made.
1: We're talking about uh, a new study out of the University of British Columbia that shows uh, children who aren't vaccinated face harsher judgments than their parents who refused immunization. Uh, Our guest this morning, Maureen Dennis, mom of four, parenting expert and founder of WeWelcome.ca. We is W-E-E welcome.ca there's still and you know i even went online this morning so much misinformation uh, that is fueling the anti-vax movement right
7: oh absolutely absolutely i i have been pretty vocal in pro-vaccination for the last five years um i have friends close friends who don't vaccinate their children we agree to disagree on it it's one of those things like Religion and politics that sometimes you just cannot discuss because it's a fundamentally different view on it. And um, the trouble is, is that the the percentage of children being vaccinated is dropping, and it's dropping considerably. And that has huge health impacts not only for that generation of kids growing up, but also for, like I said, the younger children and the elderly, um, and anybody who is is um, immune compromised. So there, the herd. Um, you know, the the protection by the herd of having everyone vaccinated, we protect those weaker ones because it's less prevalently exposed to, they're less prevalently exposed to it. As that drops, there will be more and more cases. We're seeing measles, mumps, you know, we don't remember. I just turned 40. I don't remember ever having anybody, um, you know, suffer from polio. But my mom and dad sure do. And those are, that's where this will end up going if we don't, somehow look at this from a different perspective. And I don't know what it's going to take, to be honest.
1: That different perspective, or at least a, a perspective, might come from uh, Health Canada and implementing a national strategy. I think that, that has to be one of the steps that has to be taken.
7: Yeah, I mean, you know, if we're saying that kids have to be vaccinated to go to school because they've been vaccinated, then kids need to be vaccinated when they go to school. Well, a public school. Um, if there, but there are there are places in the U.S. that are down way below. I believe this art, this article said that the uh, the Canadian um, percentage is down to 85%, where it should be 95%. There are places in the U.S. that are well below that, well, well below that, and um, that's where we're seeing these outbreaks of diseases that we haven't seen in in a generation
1: we've heard so many arguments uh from the anti vaccination uh, movement is there one that is more compelling to you that you can maybe believe a little bit about it you know we've we've heard everything from you know the health angle to you know you don't you don't want to uh, prop up the uh, the profits of the pharmaceuticals
7: yeah i mean the only thing I, I can relate to as a brand new mom you have this perfect baby and it is scary to inject them with something that could potentially Make them ill, even if it's just for a day, even if it's just for a couple of hours, where they're going, they could possibly get a fever, a sore arm, um, from from those vaccinations. And I totally, totally get that. But it is far scarier to if you've ever talked to a parent who has uh, lost a child or dealt with, say, meningitis. Um, I worked with uh, with a with a mom who who lost her son to meningitis, and that story is even. Is, is so scary and and just so terrible she lost her son and what she wouldn't give to have had that opportunity to have given him um, the meningitis and there aren't vaccinations for all forms of meningitis but if there had been you bet that she would have given everything she could to have that and we need to keep that in mind and you know I think that in some cases they're just they they're they're not willing to be educated um, but sometimes that empathy of mom to mom might be something that, you know, really does change the perspective.
1: And for everything that is good about the Internet, there is a lot of misinformation on the Internet, and that really spreads like wildfire and, is, as I said, has really fueled uh, this this group.
7: Yeah, I mean, it's fear. There's, uh, you know, there was huge, huge media support from the likes of Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey years ago there's less of that now. I think that, you know, I've there's the media is talking more about the parents who, who uh, were anti-vaxxers, and for a variety of different reasons, usually medical scare, um, have changed their ways and their thoughts on it. And they're becoming more vocal. And I, and I think that's, that's the key to it. I mean, nobody, I mean, there's the is out there. Yes, pharmaceuticals make money off of it. But on the same token, they do for everything that is going to heal and protect people. So it, it has to come from that fear of not damaging your child by um, a vaccination, but fear of actual medically documented diseases that not just harm you know people that uh, you know you get ill for a few days. These are these are killer um, diseases that we're dealing with that are coming back so it's what's going to change that i think that having these conversations and talking about it and really you know allowing the people who have stories to tell them because I don't know what else you can find on the internet that you know you can find anything to support whatever thought you have on the internet. That's for sure.
1: You mentioned the uh, the two celebrities, uh, Jim Carrey, Jenny McCarthy. It's it's I find it uh, somewhat interesting that uh, the the pro vaccine group has not utilized the strength of celebrities to uh, promote uh, you know the positives of, of getting your child vaccinated.
7: Absolutely. I mean, you know that is probably something. Like I said, they do. Um, I have worked with as, as uh, you know, a mom um, who, who does a lot of vocal um, work in the media to try to spread those stories and to ask the questions that moms want to know when they're at that stage. You know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on, especially in those first few weeks and months that you have a child and you have to make so many decisions that it can just be overwhelming and you just want to say, no, just don't don't touch my perfect baby. I'll deal with it later. But there are some there's so many things that happen at that same time that you really do have to educate yourself and, you know, maybe spend a little bit less time shopping for the perfect nursery and really educate yourself before baby arrives um, on which vaccinations you're comfortable with. And if you really want to talk to your doctor, find a doctor who understands your concern, and work with them. There's doctors who are willing to work on a delayed schedule, so they're not getting as many vaccinations right up front. But that doctors understand which ones have to happen right away, so that things like whooping cough don't um, infect your child. I mean, there's there there adults can carry that without. Um, any symptoms, visit your baby uh, in the first few weeks, you know, when you're first, when you first bring them home. And it doesn't matter if you make everybody wash their hands and, uh, you know, disinfect them there. It just, they might just give them a little kiss on the head. You've, you know, you know, you you cuddle new babies. Um, And so it's really, you know, it's important that these stories come out and, you know, I think that if you pull too high of a celebrity, you may have the opposite challenge come in Hmm. But I know that um, we we do a um, Get the Shot campaign that the Ontario Public Health has been running for the last several years, donated my time to do it. And um, there are celebrities like Tracy Melcher and Rick Campanelli who have supported that as well. So I think that there is some pretty strong voices, but fear is always, you know, it's always greater.
1: No doubt about it. Maureen, I really appreciate the time. I know you're busy uh, and uh, continued success uh, with uh, moving this down the road.
7: Thank you so much.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.